Quick disclaimer, we are back in Greek mythology, so there are some instances of sexual assault this week. Please see the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Greek myths with the background of Artemis. We'll see why you should tolerate your friends' stories and way too many pets for all you can slurp honey and how bath time is private time. That seems pretty basic, but apparently it's not to the guys in today's story. The creatures this week are the little naked German men living in your walls. And why you might not have a problem with that. This is Myths and Legends, episode 341, The Huntress. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're back in the stories of the Olympians with Artemis, daughter of Leto and sister to Apollo, who we covered last month. I say Greek myths, but we do bring Roman stories into this as well, and while historically it is nowhere near as simple as just a reskin of Greek myths, it was a complex and distinct religion all its own, I will immediately undercut my own assertion there and tell the stories interchangeably using the Greek names. It's just simpler for audio. These are episodes where I try to give the comprehensive picture of the Olympians, but tell it in a fun story, as far as that's possible with the Olympians. Speaking of not fun times, we'll jump in with that, with the Earth herself, Gaia, reflecting on the actions of her grandson, Zeus. Poor, poor child, Gaia thought. She told herself it was fate. That even she, Gaia, the Earth, couldn't fight fate. She had been one of the first, maybe the first. Gaia was the personification of the Earth. She, through her son, which, yeah, gross, had the Titans. The chief Titan, Kronos, castrated his father, Uranus, and, with his siblings had the Olympians, who overthrew them. There was a rhyme to it all, a horrible meter that kept repeating with merely different words, atrocities begetting atrocities. Take this girl, Alara. Gaia had seen her, a bright spot in the lives of everyone around her. To her father, King Orchomenus, she was everything. She was kind and gracious. If she had been born in a different world, in a different time, she would have been a wonderful queen. Now, her light was being smothered, doused in the dark. The type of flourishing Alara displayed would not go unnoticed. Not by the people in her kingdom, and not by the young, attractive man who arrived in her room in the night. Alara held him off as well as she could. In the end, his hungry eyes flashed in the warm darkness of the Greek Peloponnese, and Zeus took what he sought. But just when things were at their most dire, with the stranger, there was a flash of light on the balcony. There was another, a woman. Alara was saved. She had no idea how much worse things could get. He, Zeus, loomed over her, 
and spoke to the ground. It obeyed, and it opened. Alara was swallowed by the dirt, the stones like teeth closing above, choking out the stars and moon for her forever. Gaia felt the girl descend. She heard the panicked words of her grandson as he hid yet another woman from his wife. Alara, the girl, found herself in complete darkness, in a pocket in the depths of the earth. Gaia felt her, heard her, before she was able to find the girl. When she finally located her, the girl she heard pounding, screaming in the dark, was gone. All that remained was the child that Zeus had left her with. Still unborn, Gaia turned the hiding place into a womb to care for the developing child, the only thing that now remained of Alara. Zeus wasn't shocked by the child or what became of Alara, because he simply forgot he stowed the girl deep in the earth and continued on with his night. Pass the soap, please, Artemis called out to her nymph followers. The nymphs looked at each other. Did she mean the ashes and olive oil they brought with them? The nymphs continued, bathing in ancient Greece, or as we say, Greece, doesn't rely on a bar of soap, whatever that is. We coat ourselves in clay or ash or something, rub our bodies in oil, and then scrape away the muck with a specially designed scraper. Then we soak in the water. Soaps wouldn't become widespread in the Mediterranean until after about 50 BC, so hundreds if not a thousand plus years from now, when the Romans, once again, whatever that means, discover soaps used by the Gauls and Germanic tribes, and whatever those words mean. So, sorry, to avoid confusion, would you like the ash and or clay, sand, etc.? Artemis sighed, yes. She just said soap as a shorthand so she could establish the place setting as a group bath full of exclusively women. Oh, so sorry. Callisto, the nymph, said. She handed Artemis the ashes. Here's the soap, wink. As they were soaking in warm water, the woman talked. Callisto said, how about that Athena, huh? Artemis probably hates her, right? Why would I hate her? Artemis said, closing her eyes in the bath. She knew the answer, though, so she didn't wait for it. Because everyone thinks we're the same, we're not the same. She's the goddess of wisdom courage, and warfare. I'm the goddess of the hunt, wilderness, nature, wild animals, childbirth, and chastity. Yeah, but you're both chaste, though, right? Staying virgins? Callisto asked. And both your names start with A. You're both young women goddesses. And both really great warriors. We are similar. We're not the same, Artemis said. She didn't have anything against Athena. They just didn't run in the same circles. Athena was always meddling in this plan or that or hanging around Zeus. Artemis was out hunting in nature. They probably would be friends if they had a chance. Callisto nodded. Well, now that this episode apparently passes the Bechdel test, she was wondering how firm was that pledge? The, the chastity one. Artemis opened her eyes. Why? Callisto just said, oh, just Apollo, her brother, was... Just out of prison, right? He was kind of like the bad boy type. And word has it, he and Cyrene just broke up. Artemis said Apollo was, frankly, a mess. 
and like kind of a terrible guy. She loved him because he was her twin and they shared the same pedestal sometimes, but he did not make it easy. Artemis said this way, their way was better. People had to know that they would violently defend themselves if necessary to protect their chastity. And as if on cue, a crashing came through the bushes. I'm not going to lie, Actian, that is a lot of hounds. Actian's hunting buddies looked at the 50 hounds. Actian was a dog person but not an actual dog person, that would be Lycaon, the king of Arcadia, who would actually be turned into a wolf. Actaeon just had a lot of dogs. Towser, Sooty, Dappled, Quicksight, and Racer, Actaeon called out. You leave Snap, Babbler, Wood Ranger, Tracer, and Wildtooth alone. Actaeon's friend blinked. Were those really their names? Yeah, look it up, Actaeon turned with a smile, then looked back. Hey, Hunter, Blanche, Blackfoot, Blackcoat, Killbuck, and Surefoot. No, do not eat that. He looked back to his buddies. Nobody let Wingfoot or Glutton lick their faces. Sorry, they were so gross. The friends sighed. They were kind of starting to understand why they never took time to do this. Honey time, Actian called out, and his servants brought out the honey. Honey was kind of his family's thing. Had he ever told the guys about the bees? His friends knew that the price of honey time was story time. They, of course, knew about the bees. That didn't stop Actian from telling them about the bees. We will learn all about the bees, but that will be right after this. out with some harmless stalking. It was basically like a menacing compliment. Eurydice, a nymph, was walking in the woods and enjoying nature, and by minding her own business completely, and not even looking at the demigod who passed her on the trail, Aristius, she definitely was playing hard to get. Like, really hard to get. Like, when she started running from him, Aristius knew that what she really wanted was for him to show his athletic prowess and that he could almost keep up. She did disappear around a bend in the trail, and Aristheus almost ran into her. He skidded to a stop for a very composed and definitely not breathless, how you doing? She wasn't focused on him. She was holding her bleeding foot. Aristheus saw the viper slither into the brush on the side of the trail. Oh, wow, okay. I can help this. I got you. Here, let me suck on your foot. Aristius cried to Eurydice's horror. Okay, whoa, okay, not like that. I mean, unless, no, okay. It was about this time that Aristius felt a violent shove and stumbled to the side. Orpheus. Aristius was a demigod and the son of Apollo and Cyrene, but even he was awed by the mere presence of an Argonaut. Orpheus cradled his wife, who was fading fast. In her final moments, the pair told each other how much they loved the other person. Orpheus said that this wasn't the end. He would come for her. Death itself couldn't stop him. 
Eurydice died in his arms. Why are you here? Orpheus said. Aristheus said he was just a helpful hiker. He offered to suck the poison out of her feet. That's not a thing people should do. It's not helpful and it puts the rescuer at risk. I'll ask again, why are you here so far off the trail with my wife? Aristheus said that he was just helping out a human woman that had been bitten by a viper. Orpheus said that his wife was very careful. She walks around in the woods with vipers and sandals. She had never been bitten except for today, when this demigod was here. Orpheus thought, no, he knew that Aristheus had chased her. Aristheus didn't answer. Orpheus nodded, that's what he thought. He drew something from behind his back, and Aristheus flinched, but saw that it was a lyre, a musical instrument. Orpheus plucked a few strings, tuned it up a bit, and then started. It was devastating. There was no buildup. It started quickly and then hit Aristheus all at once. He dropped to his knees, wailing. He understood immediately. Orpheus had put all of his grief for his wife into a song. He was such an amazing artist that he could literally make his audience feel what he felt. Aristheus screamed at him to stop. Stop, he was so sorry. Orpheus said that Aristheus had killed her. He would feel the pain of loss. I didn't kill her. I merely menaced her into a situation where she died. Aristheus cried. That's the same thing. Orpheus barked and then breathed. Well, that should do it. His plucking at the lyre ceased. Aristheus said that that wasn't so bad. Orpheus said that that would merely be the beginning of his grief. Aristheus was the god of beekeeping, right? Aristheus nodded. Well, that song he played was only a fraction of the anguish he felt for his wife. And even then, it wasn't tuned for humans, let alone demigods. Then who was it tuned for? Aristheus asked. His voice wavering. He got his answer when a bee dropped down in front of him, writhing on its back. In moments, its legs curled up into the air. Not the bees! Aristheus cried out. All around him in the forest, the bodies of bees tapped the leaves and dirt as they dropped. The song had spread. The bees were dying. Wow. Yeah, that's really sad. I forgot about that part. Actian's hunting buddy sighed there in the forest. One reached for the honey, but Actian slapped his hand. Yeah, right? All the bees dying, Actian said. The hunters looked at each other. What? No, though if something like that did happen, like in a worldwide sense, it would be an ecological nightmare. But no, they were talking about Eurydice and Orpheus. Oh, they remembered that story. Episode 96. Ah, yeah, man, another hunter chimed in. He remembered that song, Orpheus traveling the world, singing it. Whole cities were shut down for days. The gutters choked with tears and snot from all the ugly crying. And then the ending? One hunter clenched his fists. I know, right, how he actually went down to the underworld, to Hades, to get Eurydice back? And all he had to do was not turn around and look at her. But he steps into the sunlight, and she's just inside the mouth of the cave. The hunter gripped his heart. She was pulled back down into the darkness. He never saw her again. Half the group was on the verge of tears. 
The other half wanted to call their wives. Uh, not how I heard it. Actian chimed in. Also, there's a version of this tale where his grandpa and Eurydice were together when she was bitten by the viper. Also, Orpheus got what he deserved when he was torn apart by drunk women, fitting in for his apiocide. Right? Am I right? Actian grinned. He knew he was right. He was torn apart by drunk women for refusing to worship Dionysus, and apiocide isn't a word. My dad invented beekeeping. There's still room for new words. Back to the story. Actian barked. The company groaned. The rest of the story wasn't much of a story, actually. The world did need bees, as we know. So it was less of a gift to Aristheus and more an everyone still needs to survive sort of thing. He had to sacrifice four heifers and four bulls to satisfy Orpheus, who was now in the underworld with Eurydice, probably the only person happy down there, and that includes Hades. He had to sacrifice the cows and leave them out in the sun for nine days. On the morning of the ninth day, he heard that familiar, joyous buzzing. Each chest cavity of each of the carcasses was full of bees, and while a bunch of dead things full of bees kind of sounds like a nightmare, Aristheus thanked the gods and was honored himself as the one who brought honey into the world. Can we eat the honey now? The hunter bros asked. Actian sighed, yes, they could eat the honey now. The men attacked the honey. Hey, Tempest, Quickfoot, Tiger, Storm, and Stout, you stay out of that honey. Bad dogs, bad. So we go into the woods and kill stuff. That's kind of it. Actian grinned. His friends, blood sugar up with the honey, and fortified with a lot of their royal host's free wine, were looking forward to this. The 50 hounds were still a bit much, but roaming the forest, they would be less annoying than surrounding Actian at the camp. Chaser, Barker, Harpalicious, Bristle, Wolflet, heel. Actian slapped his leg, and the dogs came over. Time to get hunting. So they all spread out into the forest. Huh. Actian thought to himself and also said out loud, weird that when the guys had a chance to fan out, he ended up alone. Probably nothing to read into there. The afternoon wore on and elsewhere in the forest, Actian could hear shouts and cheers, the cries of animals and the celebrations of men. He, though, had traveled farther than he ever had on these hunts. He was in a lost and wild part of the forest and he heard laughing, giggling. Ooh, it's a lady. Blackmane, Wildwood, Rover, Shepherdess, Spot, Savage. Please, be quiet, Actian whispered, and his dogs obeyed. Together, they crept forward and... Okay, look, just gonna say before things kick off, if you happen to be walking through the forest and you see a goddess bathing completely naked with her nymphs, no, you didn't. You just turn right around and pray that they didn't see you seeing them. You 100% do not think that, for some reason, you have the upper hand, because the goddess, Artemis, happens to be away from her bow and standing up in the water, naked, while all of her nymph friends shriek and scramble to cover themselves all around her. When she says, you will not speak of this to anyone, ever, that's her being kind, because, believe me, 
If you go against that command, she will ensure that you never speak to anyone ever again. Acteon smiled. On some level, he had to have known that his friends didn't actually like him. That the only one on these hunts with him for the free wine and all you can slurp honey. This, though, showing them a naked goddess and Artemis to boot, this was what would do it. This was how he would redeem himself with this once-in-a-lifetime sight. He heard the guys behind him, coming with the rest of his dogs. Hey, boys, come check this out, Actian grinned. And then his face contorted in pain. He doubled over and dropped to the ground, the dogs with him rushing over to sniff him and see if he was all right. He tried to scream, but no sound came out. Horns erupted from his head. His hands became lumps, fingers fused together before they elongated. His clothes became a soft, hairy pelt that covered his whole body, and he watched his nose darken and extend out before his face. He had been turned into a stag. He could see and hear more than ever before. Everything was louder, scarier. Actian turned toward his hounds, but unlike every other time in his life, he wasn't filled with happiness and comfort seeing his dogs, but pure electric terror. They, too, had changed how they looked at him. They no longer smiled and wagged their tails. They bared their teeth, arched their backs, and growled. Actian ordered them to calm down, but his voice only came out in deer sounds, which, if YouTube is any indication, is somewhere between a balloon deflating and a soft bark of his own. His body awash in stress and deer adrenaline, called adrenaline, as it's known in the veterinarian community, Actian stopped fighting his instincts and just ran. He outpaced Rover, Spot, Savage, and all those dogs, only to find Bristle and Wolflet on his right. Barker and Chaser lived up to their names on the left, and soon he found himself staring down the rest of the pack, led by Harpalicious. Quick aside, some versions have a harpy, some have a Harpalicious. I went with Harpalicious because of course I did. Actian wondered if it was possible, if it was possible that all deer felt like this as the hounds closed in, that they had to live in terror and die so that he and his buddies could have a fun weekend. Harpalicious took the first lunge, and even though he was scared for his life, Actian wouldn't swing his antlers. He wouldn't hurt the dogs, even though they tore at his flesh. Even though the last thing he saw before his eyes went dim were his beloved best friends tearing him apart. Actian, his men called out. His dogs did well. They took down a beauty of a stag. His traveling companions, what some would call his friends, though probably not them, waited around for him for hours before concluding that one of two things happened. The demi-demigod had been taken up to Olympus as part of a grand purpose. Probably not, though, since his dad was only the demigod of beekeeping, 
hardly the same pedigree as Heracles or anyone else for that matter, or he merely became lost in the forest and would turn up eventually. They let the dogs go because well, they would probably help him home, and definitely not because they didn't want to manage 50 dogs, whose wackadoo names they couldn't even begin to remember. Artemis, for her part, calmly got dressed and headed out of the forest. We will actually get into Artemis' backstory, but that will, once again, be right after this. Artemis' first memories were her mother and her brother. I will say I made a mistake last month when I had Apollo being born first. He definitely was not. Artemis is the older twin, and that's actually super important. Our early experiences in life have an effect on us. Our son loved sharks because a book on sharks was the most advanced one in his first grade class, so he read it like 20 times that year. Someone let me check out a copy of The Greek Myths by Robert Graves when I was entirely too young, and here we are. Artemis helps women in the pains of childbirth, because when she was moments old, her mother needed help in the pains of childbirth, and Artemis helped to birth her own twin brother. I've never given birth, that should not come as a surprise, but I've been there. It's a wonderful, life-changing experience, and it can also be extremely stressful and scary at times. I like to think that the experience had an effect on the woman Artemis would become. She not only swore off relations forever, so she would never give birth, but she knew, in a world with Zeus's, Poseidon's, Hades's, and, well, pretty much pick any name of the male Olympians, and yeah. Also, real quickly, someone wrote in about how he did Hephaestus dirty by mentioning his attack on Athena, ending up with him impregnating his own grandma, and, buddy, Hephaestus did himself dirty. You don't know how much I wanted to have a clear, clean, relatable arc for that poor guy. But he had to go and do that. I cannot be so hard on Zeus and then cover up Hephaestus' dirt when it doesn't fit my narrative. Anyway, with those guys out there, Artemis knew that she would need to protect herself. So, she sought out Hephaestus. If she was to defend herself, she would need the best weapons available. She stepped into his workshop on Lepari, off the northern coast of Sicily. By that time, she had attracted a retinue of sorts. Nymphs who, like Artemis, had taken a vow of chastity. They would live on their own in the forests and protect themselves in a world that seemed not to want to do either. Even as a young girl, she didn't flinch from the cyclopes that shook the ground, but instead stood eye to eyes with them as they loomed over her. The nymphs that didn't flee cowered. One, a giant by the name of Brondis, sat down. He patted his knee, telling the young woman to take a seat. They could talk about what she wanted and come to some sort of agreement. A little something for him, a little something for her. They could work it out. Artemis arched her eyebrows. Oh, she walked over and sat on his lap. His single eye looked her up and down. As his hand found the small of her back, she said he was a big man. She started running her hands on his chest. Her fingers ran in between his shaggy chest hair. Brontus smiled. 
He liked where this was going. Then her hands closed. She grabbed two handfuls. Brontus's eye widened, and he gasped, wait, and Artemis yanked, pulling out as much chest hair as she could. Brontus howled and leapt to his feet. Artemis said that anyone else who wanted to lose hair, or more, should keep working on that trough for Poseidon's horses. The Cyclopes dropped their tools. Hephaestus, not yet possessing his trademark limp, strode from the back with a clap and, commending her bravery, said he would make whatever she needed. He and the Cyclopes went to work on her bow and arrows. Artemis, like her brother, went to Pan in the forest, the sleazy Mr. Tumnus type. Artemis didn't want her twin brother's gift. Prophecy was a cage. Now, she wanted something simpler. Pan, despite being Pan and surrounded by the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, simply smiled and gave her the three lop-eared dogs she asked for, pleading with them to please leave. They were very scary. Artemis had her hounds, she had her bow, she had her women. She took the dagger from her belt and cut her dress so that it stopped just above the knee so she could move and hunt. She was ready, and that was good because her mother, Leto, was under attack. Hey, sis, Apollo said before the monster grabbed his ankles and full-on Loki'd him like the Hulk in the first Avengers movie. Artemis had arrived as quickly as possible, and it had been just quick enough. Apollo turned it so his head was facing the right direction. It came from Gaia. It's her kid, Apollo yelled as he and Artemis dove behind a wall. The earth shuddered, and they heard a sound that was like a wail. Okay, it's not her kid, it's, ooh, Zeus's? Apollo grimaced. The earth shook harder. Oh, it's our nephew, Zeus, and some woman named Alara, Apollo said. He guessed their great-grandma didn't have time to relate the whole story, but Apollo had been there when the ground opened up, and Titius emerged. Leto was the first person he saw, and it turned out Titius was more like his father than his mother. Apollo started strategizing. Okay, they would lure him to the sea, Apollo skipping along with his lyre. There, they would use some dolphins, and they would take the sun, and Artemis stood, shot one arrow from her bow, and the giant shook the earth for the last time. She ran to her mother and comforted the woman. She had done it. She had stopped the cycle of atrocity in this one instance. This whole thing showed her that she had made the right choice. There was no compromise in this world. If someone, anyone, jeopardized her agency, her safety, they would be cut down. So, Artemis went hard, but she kind of had to. Zeus, her father, was part of the problem, and her brother was shaping up to be just like him. And then, ugh, the suitors. Suitors is a generous term because, in my mind, suitor implies that, if you're rejected, you'll go away. There was Alpheus, a river god son of Thetis, who fell in love with Artemis. By this time, everyone knew of Artemis's vow. It wasn't happening. Alpheus was undeterred, though. He heard Artemis and her nymphs in an all-night revelry in the forest. Unlike Actaeon, they heard him first. He emerged, ready to do whatever it took to be with Artemis, to a dozen-plus women caked in white mud. 
they all stared at him silently, unafraid, with no distinguishing features among them. Alpheus stood there awkwardly, and then decided that it wasn't worth it, and went home, because if he couldn't be with Artemis, then what was, what was the point of all this? It was definitely him choosing to walk away, and not two dozen huntresses looking at him like ghosts, completely unafraid of him. We've told the story of Otos and Ephialtes back in episode 91, the two giant sons of Poseidon who fell in love with Hera and Artemis, respectively. The prophecy went that they could only be killed by one another. Artemis, turning into a stag, goaded the boys into hunting her to impress her. They threw their spears, and they hit one another. Safety means power, and power means respect. Artemis could not show weakness if she was to be an Olympian, and couldn't let even the smallest slight go unanswered, which is the angle I'm taking to try to comprehend Artemis's more, um, massacre-y responses to people defaming her or her family. Not that they're justified, just trying to understand them. Niobe, queen of Thebes, said that she was superior to Leto. She had 12 children, six sons and six daughters, who, according to her, surpassed Apollo and Artemis in every way. Now, in any other world, this could just be seen as a nice thing that you say to kids you love. Of course, it also didn't help that, as the queen, she didn't let people worship Leto in Thebes. In the world of the Olympians, though, this slight against Leto, Apollo, and Artemis deserved a response. And they got it. One by one, Apollo went full Assassin's Creed in the forest outside of Thebes, cutting down the suns as they went after whistles in the tall grass. He personally dragged the bodies before Niobe. Niobe, seeing her son's remains before her, doubled down. Now, she wasn't equal to Leto. She was better than Leto, because she only had daughters. She stood victorious in this field of woe, as Ovid says. It was then that she heard brief cries behind her. Cries and thuds. Her daughters fell, too. Artemis stood in the doorway. Bow pulled back. Another arrow flew. At five, Niobe threw herself over her youngest daughter, begging the Olympians, please, please let this girl live. She would do anything. Take her, Niobe, but please, let her last daughter live. Artemis looked to her mother, Leto, who, with a shake of her head, gave the final command. Artemis didn't have a clear shot, so she drew her dagger, pulled the mother from the daughter, and answered the slight against her family. It said that Niobe cried so much, she turned to stone. Callisto walked in the woods. She was one of Artemis's nymphs, and she was running late. A form stood ahead of her. In the shadows of the forest at twilight, she could barely make it out before... Apollo. Callisto swallowed hard. Hey, he said. She, she told him she had to get to Artemis's group. They had their hunt. Yeah, I know. I know you hang around her. Really noticed you, Apollo said, taking a step forward. He had? He had, wow, okay. Uh, that, more than noticed, Apollo interrupted. He said he couldn't stop 
thinking about her. She said this was wow, but, and it's not that she didn't want to, it was just their vow. Apollo said vows were words. And if she wanted to, then she should do it. Apollo was close enough to take her hand now. He said he wouldn't tell. One kiss. He took her into his arms, and it was, it was nice, but she pushed away. It wasn't what she wanted. Artemis, her life, she had sworn an oath. She intended to keep it. She blinked, and Apollo was Artemis. Callisto was still in her arms. Artemis beamed. Callisto had passed the test. But she didn't let Callisto go. Artemis brushed Callisto's hair back. She knew, and she felt the same way. Artemis leaned in to kiss her, but Callisto stopped it. It may have been what Callisto wanted, but she knew Artemis enough to know that this wasn't what Artemis wanted. Then, a sinking feeling. Cold dread crept up her spine. She tried to wriggle free from Artemis's grasp, but Artemis was unyielding. Callisto realized that this wasn't what Artemis wanted, because this wasn't Artemis. The beard unfurled, the arms thickened, and Zeus laughed. I would like to tell you that Artemis came to Callisto's rescue, or that when she discovered that Callisto was pregnant one time, when Artemis and the nymphs were bathing, that she didn't cast Callisto out. But Artemis's life was one that left no room for compromise. No quarter. Though they both wept, Artemis sent Callisto off into the forest. Alone. She was banished. Exiled. Never to return. Days later, a massive bear burst through and found Artemis and her nymphs in the woods. Artemis let an arrow fly, and it caught the bear in the shoulder. The bear howled and barreled away. Artemis grinned. The hunt was on. They had to get this thing before it hurt anyone. It didn't hurt anyone. Not even when cornered. Not even when Artemis let a few more arrows fly. And she drew her knife. Not even when she raised her knife to end the bear's life. As the bear laid there, dying, she looked up at Artemis. And Artemis knew. It was Callisto. Artemis had cast her out. Removed her protection. Hera had found her wandering in the forest. And knew that all Callisto wanted was for Artemis and the nymphs to come seeking her. So she granted Callisto's desire. Hera turned her into a massive she-bear, knowing that Artemis wouldn't turn from the hunt. It's the least you can do for her. You did this to her, Artemis said to her father. Zeus had no response. He nodded. Yes. Zeus took what remained of Callisto in her dying moments and cast her into the sky. She became the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear. Like most of these, it's tough to know where to end it. Artemis doesn't have an ending. In time, she became one of the most well-known and widely worshipped goddesses in the Greek world, some places saying she had something like 30 cities. 
I will say that, when it comes to Callisto, there are many different versions of the story. I, selfishly, wanted to end it at the beginning, kind of, where we had Artemis punishing Actaeon and forcing him to be hunted down by his own dogs, and then ending the episode with Artemis tragically having to hunt down one of her own friends, based on her code. There are differences regarding who turned her into a bear, who killed her, who Zeus turned into, which I tried to illustrate, and whether Artemis was even involved with the death at all. In some, it's Callisto's son who, years later, hunts her down and kills her. It is sad that Artemis, to live a safe life, had to go to such lengths to protect herself and her nymphs, to the point that she would be so dogmatic and unyielding as to abandon a victim of assault to Zeus and Hera's violent back and forth, despite being born into that very chaos and breaking free from it herself. Next week, we're back in Japanese folklore with Lord Longlegs, a creature that can never be hurt, and a neighbor that has found an interesting way to steal. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of Nick Cage's face burned on a wooden spoon, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that are not contributing to the booming cottage industry of burning Nick Cage's face on the things. Check out mythpodcast.com membership for more info on the membership or find us on Apple Podcasts. The creature this week are the Heinzel Mansion from Cologne, Germany. Look, I love what I do. This is 100% my dream job. That being said, some days it is a job. Some days, if I could wake up and have the episode topic found, researched, written, recorded, edited, and posted so I could nap all day, yes. I can't think of any one of us who wouldn't take that deal, at least from time to time. Well, that's the sort of deal Cologne had going for it. Until a woman spilled some peas. Yeah, apparently their houses were packed full of little naked men, just hiding in between the walls and attics and basements, wherever. And look, yes, it is creepy to have little naked men watching you throughout the day with unknown motives. Absolutely. For an early retirement, though, in today's economy? Yeah. Enjoy the show, Heinzelmachen. The Heinzelmachen would bake bread for the bakers, wash up for people, so for the tailor, they steal stuff and bring it to you, like the buttercat. It was amazing. No one had to work. No one asked questions. Seriously, why would you? Well, the tailor, in name only though, remember he didn't actually do any tailoring, the tailor married a woman from out of town. Then she came to live in Cologne. She was curious who or what was doing all of this and what they wanted in return. So one night, she laid a trap. She covered the stairs in peas. Stories differ on what happened next. Either the Heinzelmannchen sidestepped the peas, but were so offended that they never came back, or the couple awoke to a bunch of little naked guys at the bottom of their stairs. But the outcome was the same. The Heinzelmannchen never returned. It said that, the following day, the people all over the city heard music playing. The Heinzelmannchen were invisible, when they weren't falling down the stairs naked, but they climbed aboard a ship, sailed away, and never returned. And worst of all, everyone had to remember how to do their jobs again. A version I read concludes by saying that, quote, the good times are said to have disappeared from Cologne, along with the creature.
we might have listeners from Cologne, so please let me know if all the good times have, in fact, disappeared with the helpful naked men. That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.